This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. Hello, this is Charles Anderson for Software Engineering Radio. Today we are talking to James Phillips from HashiCorp at HashiCorp. James works on console and surf. He also developed fault-tolerant avionics for SpaceX and called out flight software is go during the first SpaceX missions to the ISS. He has also worked on web applications and embedded systems. Today we will be talking to him about service discovery. Welcome to Software Engineering Radio, James. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's good to be here. Um, I do have a bit of an odd mix in my background of sort of embedded things and web applications, but uh, I think it was good training for what I do at HashiCorp with real-time mixed with distributed systems. Great. So why don't we dive in then? So can you tell us at a very high level, what is service discovery? So at the highest level, um, it's basically a system that lets you say, where is service foo? And that answer is usually something in the form of an IP address and a port number. And a service can be kind of a logical entity within your architecture. So you might have, you know, a database or you might have a, a pool of application servers, things like that. Um, so usually there's a set of processes that, that back a given service. And usually for most highly available things or scalable things, there's, there's more than one process that makes up a, a service. And service discovery lets you find those things on kind of a spectrum of Maybe a, you could have a fully statically configured service discovery system or a very, very dynamic service discovery system. So the, the techniques you use to do service discovery vary a lot, depending mostly on sort of how fresh the information is and how changes get put into your service discovery catalog. So when you say a very static configuration, that makes me think of just using configuration files where I might update them occasionally and I could use a configuration management tool like Puppet or Chef. What's wrong with that approach? That approach can work okay when you have a small handful of things you manage, but as soon as you get even sort of a large-ish, medium, large-ish to very large infrastructure, um, it becomes very, very hard to keep that catalog up to date by hand. Um, the times involved to do a convergence run can you know run into minutes. Um, that's often not fast enough to propagate a change. And also just the having a human in the loop to sort of check in changes to that catalog, manage a list of IPs, and then have a system push that out becomes a burden in a system that you know you want to run as automatically as possible. So it becomes kind of a maintenance burden and a, a response time problem for an infrastructure once it gets beyond any, you know, once it's beyond sort of a trivial scale, that gets really, really hard to manage. Right. And I can imagine even at a small scale, you mentioned response time. If you need response time, it's still going to take a while. Yeah. If your database, you know, if you do a master failover and you want to point all your clients at somewhere else, you know, you want that change to go out quickly. You don't want that to take, you know, tens of minutes to propagate through your system. So the configuration management tools have definitely have a role. Um, even even if you're using a service discovery system for bootstrapping new nodes or kind of getting the service discovery system kicked off. Um, but in terms of 
managing sort of the ongoing state of your infrastructure, it, yeah, it becomes very, very difficult to do with a sort of a static setup. Okay. We've been talking about scale. That kind of hints to kind of larger networks. What what network scope is appropriate for service discovery? Sort of LAN, data center, cross data centers? Uh, my short answer to that is, is yes. <laughs> um, it's It can have a place basically at, at all those those different sort of levels. So, you know, within an application, you you wouldn't necessarily have it, you know, within a process isn't, you're not going to find like components or plugins with a service discovery mechanism. But once you have a process trying to find out where another process is, it's appropriate there. And then when you get into highly available or globally distributed infrastructures, um, it definitely makes sense for, you know, some service in data center A to reach out and find an instance of another service in data center B. So it makes sense. Usually there's sort of a, a preferential scope. You want to use things that are close and nearby. And then as you know, sometimes it's part of normal operations to find things remotely or, you know, at a much larger tier across the internet. Uh, and it definitely makes sense when you're talking about, you know, geo redundancy and failover and things like that. So you want, ideally your service discovery system would let you cross those boundaries without having to have like a totally separate instance that's totally disconnected and your application has to know about how to go reach out to all these different things. Okay. In a, a local network, would service discovery be comparable to the zero configuration networking, something like the Apple Bonjour? Is that a, a form of service discovery? It definitely is um, in terms of sort of the most basic, you know, where, what's the IP report of an instance of this type of service? We'll see later. There's other facets of service discovery, like managing other types of configuration or orchestration, where something like that probably isn't ideal. Yeah. Um, and it's also a system that often requires dependence on things like multicast and features like that. So it's, I, that's like sort of a low level piece that might be part of a bigger service discovery solution. As you, if you look at sort of a full spectrum of what you need in a, in a complete solution. Um, but it's, it'd be a very limited form of service discovery. So you mentioned processes finding one another. Um, can you tell us some more about some scenarios where service discovery would be appropriate? Um, when you talk about processes finding each other, I think of something like a service-oriented architecture, possibly microservices. Definitely. Uh, service discovery, I think even for a monolithic application, uh, your basic configuration, like where's the database? How do I connect to it? That even makes sense in that type of architecture. But as you move to service-oriented or microservices, uh, you're going to have sort of a, a much more distributed set of pieces that need to find each other. You'll have much more sort of dynamic environment in terms of uh, different pieces of your architecture coming and going over time. In general, you'll have uh, more than one instance to choose from. So you'll want to choose a healthy one to talk to. Um, so the things get a lot more dynamic as you have a, an architecture that's distributed across more sort of functional pieces. So service discovery really shines there. And then in the extreme, if you're running under a resource scheduler like Kubernetes or Mesos or Nomad, you'll have your your pieces are placed onto machines in your cluster basically by a, an automated infrastructure. So at that point, there's basically no chance to have you know humans editing config files and pushing out changes. You need something that in real time can manage where all your resources are and and how, which ones are healthy and and where to find them. Okay, um, are there Applications or scenarios where I wouldn't want to use service discovery? 
I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I, I think the basic sort of hygiene of, of separating the configuration out of your application is a good thing to start with early on. It, it, you know, it's you don't want to be hard coding IP addresses, you know, in your source code or whatever in the extreme. So you, you you're going to want some separation there from the beginning. And I think it's also easy to sort of progressively use different features of service discovery mechanisms as your application gets more sophisticated. So um, the, with a service discovery system that supports a DNS interface, you can use uh, service discovery by just you know having your application look up a host name. Um, so you can have like essentially a zero touch integration even very early on. And then in, over time, you might need to use orchestration features to elect a leader among many potential leaders in your pool of services, things like that. So it's it's possible to sort of start simple within an integration that's very, very uh, lightweight or essentially even zero impact your application code and then expand from there. But to start that way versus hard coding or, or maintaining these things uh, is a good way to go. And also um, in a world where you might be building AMIs and you know machine images and things like that, it's a nice like separating out uh, the service discovery piece into a, a separate layer is handy for not having to, you know, bake a new AMI when some configuration changes. So having that layer in there can even have practical implications for your deployment pipeline and, and just how you manage your, your, your images for deployment. Okay. So yeah, that's, you said something there that I was, that made me think about immutable infrastructure. And, and certainly if you're talking about baked in, uh, AMIs and actually extracting out this variable configuration and information that that would make sense, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, having that layer there and then being able to dynamically push changes out um, after something's deployed without having to actually, you know, invasively get into that image and, and change its configuration is is a super big plus. And that same AMI can connect to any database or connect to any instance of your API server or whatnot because it's getting all that configuration on the fly from the service discovery system. Okay, so yeah, move at least the configuration-related variability out of your infrastructure. All right, that makes sense. Let's uh, move into some more kind of technical details. Uh, what data are typically stored in uh, service discovery repositories? You mentioned uh, host names or, or IPs and port numbers. Is that kind of the extent of it or is there more? That's sort of the most fundamental data, but um, when you get into managing um, services their, and their configuration, um, you generally need a little bit more information. So you'll typically have um, things like, you know, database username, potentially credentials, tokens, like other configuration type information that goes along with the basic IP and port information that, that's already stored in the service discovery system. Um, it's also a good place to put things like feature flags. Um, the, there's kind of a general bucket of key value information that nearly every service discovery system supports, which is useful for capturing basically the, the whole set of configuration data that you might need for interacting with other services. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask about something as something like database credentials or something. So those could be in service discovery. And then I hadn't even thought of feature flags. So what are the, you mentioned kind of a key value storage thing. What are typical components of a service discovery tool? So the sort of, if you want to take a complete 
solution for service discovery, it, it really comes down to uh, four different pieces. So there's the core service discovery. So, you know, where is this thing? What's its IP and port? How do I, how do I connect to it? Any complete solution generally needs a health monitoring piece. Um, it's not really interesting to get, you know, an, an instance that's no longer functioning uh, when you're looking for something to connect to. So having a health monitoring component creates a really sort of fresh and live set of data that's going to be very easy to manage within your, in your infrastructure. You need some configuration storage. So that's generally in the form of a KV store, key value store. And that can also be used for coordination. So we can talk about some applications around that. And then an orchestration piece. So it's often useful um, to be able to, to say, among many possible instances, help have tools to elect a leader or make sure that a certain operation is done in a way that doesn't have any race conditions. Or even some systems even let you do things like send events out or you know run commands, do like sort of more dynamic things if you want to have a an event go out across your fleet and cause some action to happen, things like that. Okay. Would load balancing be a function of uh, service discovery or is that going to be something separate? It can be, and many, it, it, it's sort of an architectural choice with different service discovery systems. So some sort of make load balancing uh, first class part of, of the architecture. Um, so you'll, you'll route all your traffic, get some kind of um, load balancer, and then that'll manage um, talking to the different healthy instances. It's often the case, though, where you can actually avoid load balancing with the service discovery system and avoid that whole tier and potential point of failure. So if you can if you can talk directly to a healthy instance by virtue of how your service discovery system works, um, it's actually kind of nice to avoid load balancing if you can. Like there's different trade-offs um, and there's different choices. One common thing is sort of within your data center, you might not use load balancers at all and you'll use your service discovery system to manage handing out healthy, here's a healthy instance of this service, talk to this guy, and if it fails, you can get a new one. But then you'll use your service discovery system to configure an external load balancer that your customers are using, say like that your website you know, IP addresses are pointed to, so that you can have combinations of things. And some systems run load balancers internally that you know route traffic over overlay networks and things like that. So there's, there's quite a range of different solutions there. Okay, so how do servers that they want to offer a service, how do they know where they're going to register to? And on the flip side of that, the clients that are looking for a service, where how do they know? I mean, you know, do we need another layer of service discovery? Yeah, I think it'd be turtles. Yeah, it's sort of turtles all the way down for service discovery. Um, you generally need some kind of seed or some way to introduce uh, a new entity into the service discovery system. Some systems do that with, you know, some well-known DNS, some serve records for some, you know, root servers to talk to. HashiCorp's console has an Atlas join feature. So we actually have a free sort of hosted joining service that'll help you find other nodes to talk to initially. And there's also different architectures in terms of how you access the service discovery system. Um, console, for example, runs an agent on every node. So your applications only ever talk to their local agent and the console kind of manages how to talk to servers and how to route your requests around. Um, other systems, you might have to locate sort of a central server and make requests against that. So there's different strategies, uh, but there usually is some sort of bootstrapping process or service that you need to, to kick things off. 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. You said the said seed, and yeah, um, at some point in time, all the way down to the following all the turtles down, we hit an egg or a seed there. Yeah, there's a there's maybe a hard coded IP address or something similar somewhere, but uh, there's yeah things like Atlas Join make that pretty easy. Like you can have a well known thing to reach out to, and it'll manage finding you a a, ser a server to join with. Okay, yeah, I want to touch on Atlas uh, towards the end here. Uh, but in the meantime, given that service discovery, the way we've been talking about it, it's going to be used possibly by pretty much the whole app, you know, even trying to find the database and things like that. Uh, it's going to need to be fairly reliable. Uh, what are some features or characteristics of service discovery tools that provide the reliability? Yeah, that's that's definitely a prime concern for a system like this, which could potentially be a it'd be sort of like a nuclear single point of failure <laughs> if it wasn't if it wasn't done properly. So a key component of nearly any or uh, any service discovery system is to be distributed and replicated. So you need to be able to basically build out redundancy to whatever level of failure tolerance you want. And that may mean having redundancy within your, say, kind of a, a local area network kind of scope. So you might have multiple servers. Um, and then you may also want redundancy by having sort of different federations of servers that can talk to each other and might be in different geographic locations and things like that. So having a distributed system with replication that can handle, you know, a, a server going completely offline or two servers or however, whatever level you want to provision to is very important. And then there's also the concerns of dealing with you know, what happens when the system is down altogether. So in the event of a partition or something like that, um, there's different strategies for, say, say like a, if you had a, a system that has a consensus algorithm and requires a certain number of servers for a quorum, and if you get below that number of servers, so maybe you can't make writes to your system anymore, you can't make any changes, you still want the reads to work well. So there's tools that are exposed to the clients to say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to take some stale information. I just want to, you know, what's your best information that you had as of, you know, this long ago or whatnot. So you want it to operate even in sort of degraded modes and fail gracefully. And, uh, and kind of at a, a very practical level, there's a lot of sort of techniques that good service discovery solutions have um, in terms of, you know, managing how they deal with retries and how they avoid thundering herds when things come back online. Uh, you know, how do they randomize traffic to spread load among different components? Uh, how do you scale certain events based on the size of the clusters and things like that? So there's quite a bit of layers that go into making a robust service discovery system that's going to keep working no matter what. Okay. And, and when you say distributed system, we mean sort of in the, the classic sense of, three or five or seven servers, and you mentioned a consensus algorithm possibly. And so then that kind of gets would get us into the CAP theorem, for example, right, in terms of making some decisions or trade-offs there? Yes, and there's definitely uh, the different tools have different strategies and different trade-offs, and there's uh, there are AP-type systems, um, and they have, like... Uh, you know that we can give some examples of specifics, but there are systems that make sort of more of an AP sort of bent that will have better uh, 
availability, but potentially much harder to reason about failure modes where you might end up with you know two different sides of your cluster working in two different ways. Um, and then there are systems that go more the CP route. So um, those are often easier to reason about, I think, for operators and provide, they have a consensus algorithm that lets you kind of know the state of your cluster um, and have a known behavior in the event that things go wrong that's fairly easy to reason about. So there's different, you know, kind of depending on your application, there's there's different considerations. But I, I would say most systems tend towards a, a CP type architecture. So preferring consistency and, and partition tolerance over availability? Yeah, but with the caveat that you have sort of a, a read level of availability, even in the loss of, of a you know, a loss of quorum, say. So, you you know, you need to think about that case and not have it just knock out. But, you know, the, the minority that can't make progress in terms of making rights can still read the current state as it was at the time the partition happened, for example. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. We, we've mentioned a couple of times about databases. Suppose, you know, rather than running my own database server, I'm hosting in Amazon AWS and I'm using their service for uh, RDS um, to provide my MySQL or Postgres server, would I still be using service discovery to discover the database, even though, in theory, Amazon's going to keep it pretty stable for me? I think so, um, because we, tools like Console have support for uh, what we call external services. So those are, those are static registrations, but they are served in the same manner um, in terms of consoles APIs as any other service. Okay, so yeah, consistency. So you're not special casing Amazon. That's right. So you can manage it sort of in the same place. You could retrieve it in the same way. And then as you, if you were gonna, you know, manage some portion of your database infrastructure yourself, it'll sort of nicely ramp into being supported by console without changing your clients. So it's it's like getting that sort of basic hygiene of having all your configuration in one place. You can you can definitely do that with external services. Right. And it also gives you the flexibility then if everyone's using the same pattern to make different decisions in the future. That's right. And the overhead is pretty low. I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 one level of indirection, which software engineers are always okay with just one more level of indirection. <laughs> one more level and we can solve any problem. That's right. Um, so how important is security in a service discovery tool? Do we need to use cryptography either to encrypt the communications or authenticating clients and servers? Security is pretty huge. I mean, it, this system basically will direct your, you know, your internal services to connect to things and make requests to them. Uh, it could be key to finding, you know, where the database is. You could potentially have credentials in there. Um, so yeah, we. It, it, any actual production deployment of a service discovery system needs to think about uh, security. You know, generally people use TLS to secure all the traffic. It's usually important to verify the identity of, of your servers. So you can also use, you know, certificate verification. Uh, like you don't want sort of random nodes on your network joining on as servers and potentially interfering with the quorum or, you know, a, a rogue amount that can push bad data in there, things like that. And then on top of sort of the basic transport level stuff, um, most tools also involve some layer of access control type tools available within the service discovery system itself. So you can scope who's going to be able to, uh, you know, 
create new entries, uh, who can delete things, who can update key values, which, you know, you can segment your paths to where different parts of your organization can kind of self-manage different parts of your uh, service discovery system. Okay. And then I would also think it probably depends or could depend on kind of the scope of the network that you're being, that you're using. If, if we're just talking about a local area network or a rack on premises, that might be different than if you were talking about uh, a number of nodes trying to find each other on Amazon. It could be. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely different practices might make sense in different ways that sort of different levels of organization, things like that. But it's like, it, it's generally good to start with TLS and, you know, some of the basics in there. And then you might only start uh, creating ACL policies once your organization gets complex or you get a couple different teams using the same service discovery system. So some of that can evolve, but um, it's it's good to have just sort of a basic level of transport security under the, underneath as a sort of a, I just call that sort of like a baseline setup. Okay. You've mentioned console as a service discovery tool, and obviously, I mean, you work on it. Um, and we'll discuss that in a moment. But what are some of the other tools that are out there in this space that you know of? I, I don't expect you to be an expert on any or all of them, and we certainly don't have time to, to dive into them. But just for other thing, other tools that uh, listeners might be interested in. Um, sure. And I'm definitely, yeah, I'm not an expert in every service discovery system out there. Uh, I do work on console full time. So that's where I, I know the most. But um, there's a class of, of, of tools that I, I would roughly kind of lump into sort of key value stores. So like Zookeeper, uh, Etcd, Doozer, and console actually has a key value store as well. Um, and these sort of generally provide kind of a highly available key value store that can be accessed by clients. And they often include mechanisms like coordination, so locking type features. So you can have a, you can actually coordinate around a, a key and make sure that value updates are atomic. They generally include some kind of health checking notion too, um, where a client will maintain a connection. And if the connection closes, something can happen in the key value store. So you can kind of know that you know, this, this guy, there's some notion of, of some client being alive and a way to have the servers help manage that. And then these generally couple some type of consensus algorithm uh, to provide a distributed replicated uh, key store. So the main thing that differentiates these different solutions and where console is a little bit unique is these often I think of as kind of like lower level toolkits. So you can build service discovery systems on top of these, but they don't necessarily have a maybe as deep a mapping of all the service discovery concepts in a, in a form that's easy to use. So they're kind of like a, a, a building block piece, but not necessarily a, you know a full solution. So like they might have basic health checking in the form of monitoring a TCP connection or having like a, a check-in kind of thing with a central server, but you wouldn't be able to do more general health checking things like you know, running a Nagio script or something like that. Um, and they also, they often don't handle some of the sort of more global scales we talked about, like going, you know, spanning different geographic regions and things like that. That's generally left to be sort of something that a client manages. So a full sort of service discovery solution, I think would encompass more than most of the sort of basic key value stores have, but they're, as sort of a building block, they're capable of doing pretty powerful service discovery type things. 
Yeah, we talked about in episode 229 of the podcast, we talked about uh, Zookeeper. Um, and yeah, it was more on the level of the key value store and uh, coordination algorithms and whatnot, rather than high level things like service discovery. Yeah. And there's other solutions. Um, there's things like SkyDNS. So it is sort of a DNS-centric uh, system that's backed by a consistent distributed system under the hood to manage the, the failure tolerance. SkyDNS and console both have a, a DNS interface, which makes it really easy to integrate with your existing applications with essentially no modifications. So you don't have to do a deep sort of client integration. You just look up a host and you know, get ports from serve records and things like that. So there's different features um, in, in these different products, but SkyNDNS is one and console has a DNS interface. And then there's more, um, there's others that are sort of more unique kind of hybrid solutions like um, SmartStack sort of composes several different pieces uh, and it uses Zookeeper under the hood. Um, and it actually uses Zookeeper for sort of its consistent database and then it uses HAProxy as its load balancing layer and kind of manages all those pieces together for you. So it's kind of a unique architecture um, that has, I'd say it's it's a little more complicated, but it has like a very specific opinion about, you know, you're going to use a load balancer, I'm going to manage the load balancer for you. Um, and then it composes several pieces around that. And there's things like Eureka from Netflix, which has, it actually has sort of an, more of an AP sort of style to it. And it has some of the pieces of the basic, like find me an IP and port. It has less of the coordination sort of general KV store type features. So it's a different mix. And they all these have different health checking strategies. There's a different mix of sort of basic uh, interface type things. Like some have thicker clients, some have really lightweight clients, some have zero clients like DNS interfaces. So they among all these, there, there are many different types of architectures. Most solutions though, I would say cover something on the order of like, you know, one fifth to three fifths of what I would consider kind of an ideal scope for a full service discovery solution though. So many of these tools, you know, they'll do one part really well, but they require you to, to build to get you know, better health checking, or you, you know, you might have really good knowledge of where services are with IP imports, things like that, but you don't have a key KV store. So you'd have to use something else there. So most of these would require you to compose several things together to get a complete solution. Okay. So speaking of complete solutions, um, perhaps we can then dive into your wheelhouse, so to speak, and, and talk about console. So Console is an open source service discovery tool um, from HashiCorp where you work. At a high level, what features does it provide? I mean, you were just discussing kind of trade-offs or how different, different applications have different sets of things that they're bringing. What does Console bring? Yeah, I think Console's unique. And it, I think it grew out of experience. Uh, we had an earlier project, which we still use, and it's sort of the the one of the basic layers that consoles built on called surf uh, surf was an AP system that is used to maintain kind of a basic list of members in a cluster with some additional metadata on them and to do some health checking. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about how that fits in, but 
in in the experience with building surf and thinking about you know how, what do operators have to reason about what should a service discovery system really you know integrate together to do well a console grew out of that and it really comes down to four different pieces so um, the basic service discovery piece that we've talked about console focuses on that but ties it to things like health monitoring which is our second key component at a deep level so it's 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 nice to have a good catalog but if the catalog's out of date then you, it's not that useful. So by coupling uh, the service discovery engine with a really rich health monitoring engine, you have a much more powerful service discovery system. And that's a set of tools you can just use out of the box. So discovery, health monitoring, configuration, we, I mentioned before, like many of the systems include a KV store, that's a key part of console as well. And we can talk about this in detail too, even our configuration store is tied in with our health monitoring store, which means it's tied in with service discovery. And then the final piece is orchestration. So uh, the, the ability to coordinate with your service discovery system, the ability to send events and you know kind of manage your cluster in real time, that's another key component of console. So tying all those four pieces together is really what makes console kind of stand out from the rest. Uh, it's, it's got all those things sort of thoughtfully integrated in a way that's really easy to use and that will do most of what people want right out of the box. Okay. What's kind of the, the basic architecture? You mentioned agents and communicating with servers. Sure. So yeah, the the basic architecture of console is that you run the console agent on every node in your cluster. So that's a it's basically a single go binary in CC to deploy, and that runs everywhere. And then you'll have some subset of your nodes that are servers. So you'll usually have uh, like three or five, depending on your failure tolerance. Um, three can handle one server failure, five can handle two. Um, so they'll, they run the same agent, but it's in a different mode. It's in server mode. So each node is running an agent. Service registration and health checks and all those basic functions about what's going on on a given node actually happen with the agent on the node. And then that agent syncs the information back to the servers and the servers run the raft consensus algorithm to apply changes in a, in a consistent way to a, a state store. So it's a, it's a little unusual, um, and it's something most people don't appreciate at first glance, but the, the agents are actually the source of truth for all your service configuration information. The servers manage a central copy of that, which is the catalog, and then they also manage things that are sort of information that belong to the whole cluster, like the KV store and your ACLs and things like that. So if you were to say swap out your servers, eventually um, once the servers come back online, the agents will sync their service configuration back up with the catalog and you'll be off and running. So it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, division of labor. So the all of the agents have the full key value store? They don't. So the, the, the agents have their configuration for their node services. And when you request or make it, when you make a change to the key, key value store or request a key, those actually are requests that are forwarded up to the servers. Okay, so they, they are managing truth for their local node. Yes. Okay. And they're syncing that truth back up with the servers. And then the servers maintain basically a, a central copy of that truth as well as the key value store. So that's managed centrally by the servers. Okay. Then, what protocols does console support for 
either the service that's starting up that wants to say I'm available or the client that says I need to find this service. I believe you mentioned DNS as one option. That is one option. So yeah, the so once you have the agent running um, and you can configure different, you know, you can disable these or enable these as appropriate. The two main interfaces for talking to it are uh, the DNS interface and an HTTP API. And generally, you'll you'll run the agent on your local node, and you'll have your applications always just talk to you know localhost port eighty five hundred. So your your applications will always just talk to console using their local nodes agent interfaces, and then behind the scenes, that agent is keeping track of where the console servers are. If a server comes and goes, it'll it'll put it on the list to, you know, it'll, it'll manage that list of servers that are possible. Uh, when, the, if a client uses the HTTP API to say read a KV entry, the local agent will forward a request up to the server and route the information back and serve it to the client. So the clients always just talk to localhost essentially, and they can do it over HTTP or DNS. Okay. But if a server's publishing, you know, saying I'm I'm here and available, that wouldn't be over DNS, right? That would not. Okay. So the and underlying the console system we mentioned, Surf is sort of under the hood there. So as sort of a background process, each console agent uh, does a periodic ping of another random agent, as well as an exchange of, of gossip information. So we there's a underlying technology that's based on a academic paper. It's called Swim, but there's a gossip protocol that's kind of a low-level part of console. Um, so for example, when you join a new node, you need basically the only the address of one other node. And you'll talk to that one, learn about the other nodes in the cluster, and then start participating in gossip and the random probing to check for the aliveness of the other nodes. So that's a mechanism that your agent on a given node will use to learn to it'll discover that another server came online, for example, through that process. And that's kind of a, that's like a low level part of consoles architecture. That's, uh, it's extremely powerful because the the cost of player provides a built-in distributed failure detector. So consoles constantly checking the health of all the nodes in the cluster and maintaining membership information about nodes that are coming and going. And the nice thing about Swim is that's done in a way that basically has kind of a low volume, constant level of traffic uh, that scales nicely across the cluster. So it's not, you know, some n squared kind of thing. Um, it's a it's a constant level where you know each at each interval, each node will pick one other random node to probe, and then there's a a gossip propagation mechanism to get the information around nodes coming and going around the cluster. So there's sort of an AP underpinning to console that provides this information of you know where the where, which servers are available this node is no longer functioning that's kind of a low level level of traffic that console maintains automatically so it's maintaining cp but the, or you, you said ap um but then console's service itself is that ap or is that more cp i, I think you said previously the events of uh say a node coming or a node being declared dead those propagate through the gossip layer in mm -hmm. sort of an a AP fashion. And then as those events are recognized by the servers, they get fed into the 
catalog uh, in a consistent fashion. So that when you when you do service discovery and you say, give me a healthy instance of this service, that's actually a request that's going up to the servers and being done based on the consistent view of the cluster. But there's a, a low level uh, sort of AP view of the cluster that's being constantly maintained and updated by all the nodes, um, in particular, the distributed failure detector. So the nodes are are checking each other and then reporting that information back up, and then the servers feed that into the to the catalog using the consensus algorithm. So your view of the cluster is always through kind of a lens of this consistent catalog, uh, but the underlying mechanism that helps realize that view and, and provide the events of this node just joined, this one went away, is is happening by this gossip protocol under the hood. Okay. So yeah, that explains sort of the, the confusion is that there are at least two distinct layers and they are aligning themselves differently on the cap triangle, so to speak. Yeah, it's a little, it's, this is a really good place for a diagram, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> verbally it's exactly, it's a, it, it's kind of a, you can think of, you can almost think of, yeah, the surf layer is kind of a, yeah, it, it's sort of a layer that informs the consistent layer, but the consistent layer is what you use for actually doing the service discovery. So it's, it's kind of like a transport mechanism, but I don't want to create more confusion there, but it's a way to you know move events around or say like, or announce that, hey, this server just joined or this server is no longer healthy. I don't think we should be using the services that were on it anymore, things like that. Okay, if I've got an application and it, it wants to find services and whatnot, and, and we talked about doing that through DNS or HTTP, but if I'm using, I'm, I've got experience with Ruby on Rails where we've got a whole bunch of YML files. Do I need to rewrite my application in terms of how it's configuring itself instead of using YML files or, you know, uh, to, to do DNS or HTTP or is there another option? There is, um, and it's very common to do this. So any application that is driven by configuration files. Um, we have some tools and there are other community tools. Uh, two in particular, there's something called console template and there's another one called env console and those are both HashiCorp tools. And what those do is they'll do, you'll run a process on a given node. It'll make a kind of a blocking long pole request up to the, the console servers to watch for things to change. And whenever a change is made to the configuration, they'll render a new config file from a template in the case of console template, or the, um, in the case of env console, they'll restart an application and set environment variables with configuration variables that came from console. Um, and then, you know, send a hub or restart a, a process. So you, you can basically get uh, a closed loop watcher that's looking for configuration to change in console, renders out a configuration file, and then restarts a service or sends it a hop or you know whatever sort of action you want to get your service to reload its configuration. And that's a very, very common glue into existing applications is to just render its config files directly from console using one of these tools and have it get restarted when things change. And similarly with the initial start, we need to run the template to generate the, the config file, then it's safe for me to start my application and it'll just read the config file. Exactly. Or you can, yeah, you can you can use the console template process to yeah, generate that initial config and then, you know, 
restart the service which, or let it start the first time. There's other, um, console actually has the concept of watches too. So you can register a script with console and say when anything changes with this service or when a node is added or when somebody touches this key, run this script and pass the information in as a, basically JSON on standard in. So there, there's uh, the capability to have sort of a reactive script. That's another way to get at this information in an application that otherwise doesn't know much about console. Uh, and there's some pretty cool, uh, Mitchell wrote a thing called console structure, which is a Go library that lets you, you basically get a magical map that's driven by stuff in console, uh, sort of piped directly into the brain of your Go application. So like there's, there's different levels of integration, but it's super common to use DNS and something like console template to talk to an application that doesn't have any knowledge of console at all. Okay. Yeah, that I can see how that would be really helpful. For the record, when you speak of Mitchell, you're speaking of Mitchell Hashimoto, whom we talked to earlier on the, the show about Vagrant, if people want to go and check that out. I wanted to ask another one of these turtles questions in terms of, you know, so we've got a cluster of servers, three or five servers. How do they start out and find each other? Is that another example of just kind of some seed knowledge that's necessary? They actually use the same underlying join, cluster join mechanism that's based on serve, but the the member information for a server says it's a server. And when, uh, when you have an existing server that sees a new one join, it adds it to quorum, uh, to the raft quorum, and starts off basically the, there's kind of like a parallel process to, to start up the consensus algorithm, but it's based on the same event of, hey, this node just joined and it's a server. So you you generally have to, uh, you know, you generally want to run multiple servers. Uh, console lets you, for like a completely new cluster, there's a configuration called bootstrap expect that lets you say, hey, there's going to be three. So as soon as you see three, you know, start up raft and, and start going. Once you have a cluster that's already running, it's also easy to add more servers. So if you wanted to go from like a three server to a five server configuration, you could just do that on the fly. Uh, and there's a process for reducing it as well. So, but in terms of your experience as a console user, the way you join it to the cluster is very similar. You're just joining an agent that's running in server mode. Okay. Uh, something you mentioned earlier, uh, HashiCorp has a service called Atlas, and I believe it has both a free and a, a paid-for tier. And I think of it sort of as a unification of a number of HashiCorp tools. Can you tell us a little bit more about Atlas? Yeah, um, so Atlas is basically HashiCorp's paid set of workflow tools that builds on on top of our open source pieces. Um, so we've got a suite of products. Um, Console Enterprise is one of them. Uh, the other two are Terraform Enterprise and Vault Enterprise. Um, and so there's a there's a web based component to those that lets you manage users. Uh, like in the case of Terraform, you can you can see a change that's going to be made to the infrastructure, have it reviewed by somebody, they can apply it. Um, you know, there's like kind of the, the workflow layer is provided by Atlas. In console's case, there's a there's a free piece of it called Atlas Auto Join. And what this lets you do is solve that initial turtle problem. Of you, you let Atlas be the turtle zero at the base there. Uh, so when you bring a new node up in your cluster, you can say, here's my cluster name, here's my Atlas token, I want to join. And it'll give you 
some addresses to to join your node to the cluster. So it, it avoids you having to manage like a fixed list of servers or fixed IP lists or for that initial bootstrap. Um, and then the the paid portion of console enterprise gets you features like a, uh, a richer key value editing interface that lets you have organizational permissions for different parts of your key store and an interface through Atlas to, to edit, to view and edit those and, and alerts features. So you can take consoles health checking information and have those events feed into systems like Slack, PagerDuty, HipChat. So you get a hosted solution that lets you bridge onto those escalation services and notification services directly from console. Okay, so the not to sound dismissive, but sort of a, a typical open source strategy of most of the tooling is open source and you can run it yourself. But when you get into enterprise situations where they want things like you mentioned, access control lists and other complexities, that's where the paid for service comes in. That's right. So yeah, it's it's sort of like the management, the workflow, the auditing, like those types of pieces are what Atlas provides. And it's working in concert with console, which has an open source, you know, an open source component. You could you could build a a pager duty escalator thing yourself, or you could use Atlas, you know, that, that type of strategy. Right. Okay. Makes perfect sense. So as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about console or service discovery? I mean, I'm sure it's a huge topic. <laughs> uh, there's one, there's kind of a pair of features that I think is worth mentioning. Um, that's pretty unique to console. So we mentioned that as part of sort of the underlying surf mechanism that underpins console, you have nodes randomly probing each other at periodic intervals to determine if the node is still healthy. And that feeds into the catalog. So if a node has, you know, if a node's not reachable at the surf layer, then it'll, after a few confirmations, that node will be declared dead and there won't, those services that were on that node won't be given out as healthy services to other nodes. That's kind of the, the basic bread and butter capability of what the those those random probes are for uh, a neat sort of side effect of that is that you're basically getting kind of a randomized sample of the round trip time on your network between all your nodes uh, in a basically an automated fashion all the time. So in console zero six, we implemented uh, a network coordinate subsystem, which uses a, a set of techniques around it's basically a set of tomography techniques, which is trying to measure sort of the dimensions of something by measurements from the ends. But what console does is it, as it's doing those probes, it feeds those round trip time measurements into a physics simulation, which ends up creating a set of coordinates for all the nodes in your network. And those coordinates can be used to calculate the round trip time uh, between any two nodes. So you get sort of an automatic model of your network that lets you make interesting decisions about it. So sort of building on top of that, one thing we didn't talk a lot about is that console lets you also join different sets of console servers together and what we call it the console WAN configuration. So you can have different, you can have a console in Europe and a console on the East coast of the United States and a a cluster in Asia and those server clusters can know about each other and you could discover services from one data center in another one. And what's interesting is the, that the network tomography model can feed into that in a very automatic way. So we have the, the sort of second feature I want to talk about is something called prepared queries. So in console, you can define, you know, you can look up a service locally. You can also define something called a prepared query, which can have a policy like 
if there are none locally, give me an instance, try the next three closest data centers by round trip time and see if you can find an instance in any of those. Um, and that can all be done automatically with network tomography. So you can, by defining a very, very simple, you know, like a three line JSON thing, registering a prepared query, you can basically enable something like geo failover. And if, if your clients are using the DNS interface, you wouldn't even have to change your clients. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Like you can say, you know, here, if, if I can't find a read replica here, just try the next three data centers and console by maintaining that tomography information will be able to calculate, well, you know, if it's failing in, you know, if, if it's in San Francisco, I'm gonna try the Asia one, but if it's on the East coast, I'm gonna fail over to Europe and it console will manage that architecture on its own. And if a data center goes offline, you'll get the next closest one after that. All that can be managed and expressed in a really, really simple way as a DNS query that your application does, which is pretty unique when all the sort of pieces of console come together like that. That really kind of drives home what you were talking about earlier about other tools and having different pieces of, of the puzzle and layers and whatnot. I can see, you know, we stack up enough turtles and we have a, a fairly awesome kind of functionality there. Yeah, and my only other sort of thought was, uh, it's definitely, I, I would encourage people to run the agent and experiment with it. You know, the agent on its own can do some basic health checking without you really configuring anything. And that's a good way to get a little experience with how it works before you've actually tied it to anything critical in your application. Um, and the things like the network tomography can give you some neat information basically without doing anything, without creating a bunch of network load or a lot of risk. And then you can sort of build on other features over time, but uh, it's pretty easy to get started. Okay. So how can people follow you, Console, or the other open source projects from HashiCorp? Anything you give us, we can put into the show notes, so you don't need to spell out URLs or anything. But Sure. Um, I'm Slackpad pretty much everywhere, so Twitter and GitHub. Um, the HashiCorp Twitter account at HashiCorp is good for getting our latest blog posts and announcements, things like that. Um, it's also HashiCorp on GitHub. All of our Most of our open source projects are hosted under there. Some still live under Mitchell Hashimoto. We have, a, we're trying to get a pretty regular cadence of webinars going. So you can definitely watch for those or there's a lot of information on YouTube from past webinars and you know, conference presentations, things like that. Uh, we have two conferences as well. We have an upcoming HashiConf EU in Amsterdam and HashiConf US in, in Napa, California. So there's some ways to get kind of FaceTime with the HashiCorp engineers uh, through those. And we're there's a ton of, uh, you know, sort of open presentations, things like that. So there's lots of ways to, to find out about the company. All right. That's great. Thanks for your time, James. I've really enjoyed our discussion and I hope our listeners have too. This is Charles and Anderson for Software Engineering Radio. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can write comments on each episode on the website or write a review on iTunes. Mention or message us on Twitter, at SE Radio, or search for the Software Engineering Radio Group on LinkedIn, Google+, or Facebook. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Thanks again for your support. Thank you.